Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people currently working in international schools, and we talk about life in their current country, and then we dive into some specific topics. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We're a Google for Education partner and made up of former educators, all experts in helping schools integrate Google into their schools and classrooms. All training is customized for every school to make sure it has lasting impact. We're also experts on online virtual Google training, and we can deliver all our certification bootcamps and training completely online to schools. We have teams in Europe and the Middle East, Asia and the US, and we can help you wherever you are. Check it out over at appsevents.com. We're also delighted to say we're now an ISTE partner and we're delivering the ISTE Certified Educator worldwide with our subsidiary AE Learning. ISTE certification is a pedagogy-focused, vendor-neutral, professional certification aimed at educators wishing to transform their edtech practice. We run two-day certification boot camps which are amazing fun, great networking and will give you a huge boost both to your career and for your school. Get all the info at aelearninglab.com. Finally, the podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People ask us what Chromebooks and Windows laptops we recommend for schools, and after literally trying them all, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more information, please just leave your email at gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get straight back to you. We go to Acer HQ in Taiwan every year to be part of product discussions, and they are genuinely the best thought out, cost-effective, and durable devices out there. And now, on to the interview. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Laura White in the UK. Uh, Laura is a teacher in a few areas, um, mainly religious education and philosophy, Uh, and she's also a consultant. She's... um, been involved in the Google Innovator program. I, I've met her once. We were just discussing at a Google a Google event, uh, and she's transitioning to be a, a full time uh, consultant in in the new academic year. We're recording this in August 2020, so a lot to talk about. And welcome to the podcast, Laura. Morning, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. So, Laura, like I think obviously it was really interesting to talk about your background. It's looking here, you did a few things at university, and then obviously went to teach at a couple of schools so it'd be great to start like at the beginning of like an extra story like I mean did you want you always knew you wanted to get into education and did you study something with that in mind or was it just something you got into later on? Uh, I I describe my entry into teaching as accepting my fate so after graduation I did I did an English degree at Cambridge I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do so I spent my 20s kind of you know singing in punk bands uh training for priesthood running my own business as a personal trainer and I just couldn't kind of find my groove or find my thing and I decided to give teaching a go and I had a very interesting and entertaining introduction to the practicalities of teaching in a quite a tough school in Eastbourne and within a few minutes of being in the classroom for the first time I knew this was for me right. um, and I haven't looked back so I've been a teacher now for 15 years. Okay. Yeah but uh, it's done pretty well in school because Cambridge obviously very well, Oxford and Cambridge are the hardest universities to get into in, in the UK. So I presume you've you done pretty well up until that point. Yeah, I think I was a very curious child. I think the International Baccalaureate programme would have suited me much better than A-levels. 
again, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had interest in lots of fields. So I, cho I chose a pretty desperate selection of A-levels in, in the UK system. Um, and actually, if the IB had been available to me, that would have seemed to be better because I could have kept that broader, more holistic platform. As it um, was, I ended up trying to do physics and English and French and general studies and maths. And it was all a bit too much. So, yeah, not a direct route into um, religious studies teaching at all. But uh, Yeah, I'm definitely, um, I'm with you on IB. I think definitely for my own children, like when they're, you know, they're young now, but I definitely would like them to, to do the IB. I, 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 I think... I'm, I don't like GCSEs and A-levels. I think it's crap. And I, I actually did similar. I did maths and physics and geography and general studies. And I wanted to do history, but I just, just you know, yeah, it's too much work for me, it seemed like, you know. So I, I just think it's, you know, I, I, if I take myself, I think I made a mistake. I don't think I should have done any maths or physics. I should have done history and a few other things I was really interested in. It was kind of my dad. I'm, I don't want to, not a sob story, you know, I mean, I did okay, but like my dad kind of was like, oh, you should do science. It's more practical. You get a better job. And it's kind of silly to, to decide that at that age. You know, it's better. To, I think the IB as a the diploma program has a bit more of a broader reach, you know, for mm -hmm. sure, more international. Having taught on both programs, I think there are some students to whom the British system is very well suited and some students for whom it's really not. And I really enjoyed teaching my first school that I worked at, a school called Ardingly College in Sussex. They they offered both. So they had a yeah. dual program and students could select or be advised as to which program would suit them better. Um, and I thought that was a really powerful setup. And, yeah. you know, it's one size fits all. I mean, then you've got the other end of the spectrum, the American system, which is like first year or two years at university is still doing a, a range of subjects, you know, like, which is yeah. completely different from the UK. But there's this rise in liberal arts programs uh, uh, that UK students certainly are, I think, increasingly selecting those kinds of programs because they want to maintain that breadth. They're interested in lots of things. They don't want to specialize yet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so you see, so you went into teaching um, af after, uh, doing your degree in did you, did you do like a PGCE or what did you do as your teaching route to uh, teaching? Yeah, so I did um, a PGCE uh, at the University of Brighton. Um, so I had a, a master's from Cambridge in English. And after about 10 years or so, I did my PGCE in religious studies because I've been very interested in theology and potentially training for priesthood. Um, at the same time, I was doing a master's in pastoral theology at Heathrow College in London. So right. I'm I'm always interested in learning. I'm always interested in developing as a person. And I think that approach comes across when, you, when you're when you teaching and when you're training people. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious and I want my students and my and my people that I'm training to also be curious and have lots of questions. So yeah. I'm, always, I'm always spinning plates. I'm always learning something. Cool. Yeah. Did, didn't, didn't I hear something that Heathrop College closed down or something recently? I'm sure I saw yeah. it. Yeah, it's 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 been the finest place to study philosophy and theology. Obviously, it's a subjective claim, but uh -huh. they have an incredible program. And I studied part time there as a master's student with incredible people from all over the world, and I felt so kind of privileged to study there. Um, and it's yeah, it's had funding issues effectively, and it's I'm not sure that it's closed or reformed, but the right. story okay. is not a good one. Yeah, it's a shame. Cool. So, what? Um, so, you went into teaching philosophy and religious education. Like, was it was it like a religious, like faith based school or a regular school? Yeah. So, in the UK system, all students have to study um, religious studies up to the age of sixteen, regardless of the context. It's supposed to be a percentage. Fifty percent of that is supposed to be 
uh, have a Christian foundation in terms of connectedness to our Christian yeah. heritage as a country. But if you're a faith-based school, you can select something else. Sure. The idea is that all children should have a bit of religious literacy, a bit of self-understanding, and a bit of other understanding. So my teaching has been in schools which have a Christian ethos, but they're not specifically faith schools. So that's not been by selection. It's just been schools that tend to value an academic approach to religious studies. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but I've also, within those schools, taught lots of philosophy and ethics-based courses, which are more secular. So the British A-level is quite based in philosophy and ethics. And obviously the IB philosophy course is completely secular. And it's really fun teaching those things sort of side by side and moving between those worlds. It's funny. Yeah, I, mean, we, I mean, I didn't do any. Was, there was no option to do philosophy at my school. And yeah, I, I, I could probably couldn't have even told you what philosophy was at 18, even even in the basic level, you know, like I had no concept of it. Uh, it's really nice. I mean, one of the things that I think um, St. Catherine's, where I've been for a long time, does really well is in year nine. So that's when the students are 13. They all yeah. follow a miniature PPE course. So they do a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of politics, a little bit yeah. of psychology, a little bit of economics. Yeah. In year nine, pre-GCSE. It's just that stage where they're just kind of opening up to the world and it's giving them a bit of a vision beyond GCSE and saying, okay, GCSEs are coming, but after that, there's this whole rich world of sure. stuff to learn about and know. So that's been a real privilege of teaching as well over the last, I don't know if within the IB you're familiar with the TOK program, the Theory of Knowledge program. So what we do at St. Catharines or have done is like a little mini Theory of Knowledge program for them, just at that stage where they're just ready for it. Sure. That's been a lot of fun. That's cool. So, um, I mean, at some point you seem to transition into like, digital uh learning do you want to talk a bit about that how you got into that kind of area yeah well i think it's i think it's really interesting how the picture has changed in education in the uk certainly i'm sure it's it's not the same everywhere but when i was training to be a teacher back when dinosaurs roamed the earth uh no about 15 years ago i remember being described as an innovative user of ict because i would actually turn the projector on and have some slides right um, yeah. that was kind of at that time, considered quite edgy and quite, you know, yeah. Ooh, are you, you know, you're doing that. That's interesting. And I'm not sure how, in terms of how we're teaching our teachers and training our teachers, developing our teachers, how well we're moving beyond that. Right. So for me, it's always been about what serves the pedagogy, what what serves my students. Why would I insist on my students manually handwriting notes while I'm talking when we know that they're going to learn better if they can listen, talk, you know, do complete dialogue tasks with each other, answer questions and respond, and I can give them a notes pack at the end. Yeah. So they've got the notes on the screen and we can look at them and talk at them together. That's going to serve their learning better. So I was led into digital by the sense of my students needing something more, something in addition. Um, and also by some of the real practicalities, you know, I, I can save myself time. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes joke that I get into digital because I'm lazy. Um, but actually, why would I reinvent the wheel every year if I've got the resource, if I've spent the time making that resource uh, to the best quality I can one year, I can then adapt it and reuse it. Sure. Whereas if I'm not using any digital resources in my teaching, every single time I'm kind of dredging up from my memory and from old handouts and all the rest of it. So I think my digital journey came from student need and from my desire to be efficient and to make the most of my time so that I could really focus on my teaching. Right. Cool. Do you, do you think that like, so obviously as we record this, we're in a sort of 
the time of coronavirus. Like, yeah. do you think that that's actually in some ways helped people move digital? Because I mean, there's a huge amount. I mean, it was obviously the UK Department for Education sent an email out to pretty much all schools saying you need to choose Google or Microsoft, you know, and they both have obviously, you know, Google Classroom, Microsoft Classroom. There's a lot of, you know, classroom management tools, obviously using Meet for like we're using right now for this to record mm -hmm. this. Like, do you think this has actually forced a lot of teachers who were like reluctant or resistant to it to get into to sort of digital, use digital tools in teaching? I think you know, there's a really well-known metaphor of the pencil, isn't there, for a doctor's in technology. You've got your sharp tip, your people who are out in front and they're risking everything and the tip sometimes breaks and it doesn't work. And you've got your main body of your pencil and they're the people who are kind of following along behind the tip, sort of getting on board. And then you've got your rubber on the end or your eraser if you're American, the people yeah. who are really adverse to technology and they just want to turn it around and rub it all out and go back to the way things were. Um, and I think that metaphor of the pencil is helpful because even though we've now moved, everyone's moved, everyone's moved without, without exception. Yeah. Um, every teacher that I work with has adopted something new. Everyone's kind of got on board. We've still got a pencil. We've still got a range of perspectives. And it's really important when we're training teachers not to um, assume that everyone is now a digital evangelist. Yeah. What I do think is interesting is often the teachers who were early adopters, I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that that goes with age. I don't think it does at all. I think it goes no, with how you are about your pedagogy because yeah. I think Sometimes your longest serving teachers are the people who are quickest to see the benefit for teaching and see the benefit for students and therefore to adopt it. Yeah. Um, but people who have been converted through this time are now some of the loudest evangelists. Yeah. You know, I can think of teachers who you know, I've been working on this project in one school for five years and teachers who really had philosophical reservations to engaging with digital learning. They had concerns about student privacy or data. It wasn't that they didn't want to do it. They thought it wasn't the right thing to do. Sure. Well, although, I agree, but some teachers do use that as an excuse as well. That, you know, I'm sure it's a minority, but some people definitely, you know, they just, they, they will come up with any excuse not, not to have to do this, you know, and I think, and, yeah. and that's a minority. I think, I think some do have the concerns you said, like legitimately, the majority do, but I've definitely found some teachers Especially in England, the most uh, the most of the places that are just so resistant to it, you know, they just don't want to use technology. Yeah, and it's important that we recognise we're not suddenly in a magical wonderland where everybody's on board. People still have reservations, people still have hesitations, people still need training and support to make the right choices. Sure. I'm not really a massive fan of the SAMA model. It can be a useful way of starting conversations about people, and sometimes what's happened for some teachers is they've just translated what they were doing into digital without actually doing any kind of redesign or rethinking so yeah. one of the measures i've always asked teachers is you know how is this helping your learning how is this giving students something um better or saving you time they haven't answered that question they've just taken exactly what they were doing before maybe lecturing to a room and they're yeah. just lecturing on zoom and that isn't better that yeah, isn't yeah. helping yes it temporarily so it's solving the temporary problem you have and if you put that teacher back in the room, they're probably going to revert to what they were doing before. What we need to do is see how teachers can hold on to what's been effective yeah. learning and take that with them back into the real classroom. So we, I've run some workshops for teachers, um, reflective workshops. I think reflection is probably one of the big themes of my working life and one of my big approaches to, to stuff. In order to go forward, We've got to really take a moment to notice yeah. what 
what's working and what isn't working. And one of the biggest challenges for teachers is how slammed they are and have been and how hard people are working, particularly people who have children of their own at home and they're working from home. It's all been a bit hectic. Yeah. We've done a couple of things where we've taken a day and we've asked staff to just talk with each other in context and yeah. establish what's worked. Just have you know, a short period of time of sharing what's been really, really effective then acknowledge what the challenges are um, and then talk and plan about how to go forward. So this kind of look back, acknowledge the difficulties and now let's let's go and do some concrete planning for September. And we want to plan in ways that are resistant to all situations. We don't know yet what situation we're going to be in in September, do we? We've got, you know, it's, it's coming closer, but it's still, it's still unknown. So sure. we need to be planning that protects learning in all eventualities. Yeah. How can we plan learning which will... Be resi- the learning itself will be resilient to circumstances. Yeah, and that's yeah. quite a head shift. It takes some time. And if you don't do the preliminary work of what's gone well and what the challenge is, it's easy for that just to be hot air. So some of the some of the training I've done over the last couple of months, I think has been, I've had particularly good feedback from teachers, has been how much they've appreciated that moment to reflect, to say that it's been hard and to think concretely about going forward. Cool. Yeah, I just want to come back to one thing. Obviously, the salmon model is something, you know, in, in education technology we talk about all the time. But mm-hmm. And you said you had some criticisms. Like, could you just like, I guess some people probably don't know what it is. There's definitely, could, could you give yeah. a criticism? And, and then I'm just keen to see what, what are your what, what are your criticisms of it? Like, what, what, what do you think isn't, uh, is it, uh, you think it's another simplification or just, I'm very like, curious what you think. Yeah, like all jargon, it's useful. Yeah. But it's it's limited. So, for example, you know, not everyone knows what you're talking about when you say Samat. So, if you stand up and do a talk, I, I get criticised in this podcast. I know you just you jump in too much, and then you know we missed out the basics. Yeah, for exactly. And I, really, I appreciate that. It's a good thing to be to point out. You know, not everyone knows what that means, which is an initial problem. Yeah. So SAMA, as I understand it, is a way of classifying digital transformation. It's when you're bringing technology into a classroom. Uh, the SAMA model suggests you can look at most of the things people might do and say it's either S, A, M or R. Yep. It's either substitution, which is they would call a level one. So you're taking something you're doing already and you're doing it exactly the same, but on tech. Yeah. Um, and then you've got augmentation. So that's level. And then the next, you know, sort of, and there's a hierarchy. These are considered to be you know, stages, developmental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you've got third level, which is modification, and fourth level, which is reimagination or some reinvention. So the suggestion is that if you're just substituting, it's not great. Yeah. If you're inventing, it's a bit better. If you're modifying, it's even better. And if you're reinventing, it's even better. Yeah. So I like the under, under the overarching principle, which is if you're going to invest the time in, in thinking about doing something differently, try and get the maximum benefit out of it. But yeah. I'm not sure that everything needs reinventing in order to be better. Right. I'm sure yeah. that sometimes substitution isn't actually useful. So I just question the hierarchy, and I think it's not always necessary to reinvent everything. Sure. Um, and for teachers who are under time pressure, SAMA can seem like they're being criticised or what they're doing isn't good enough because it's only small steps. Yeah. And one of the things we've noticed definitely in schools is actually people need to take small steps. It needs to be manageable, and we need to break it down for them. I guess yeah. this goes back to... The research part of my career which we'll probably move on to in a minute about what makes for effective learning and training right. um, and certainly 
inspiration is important and everyone needs to understand what the possibility is. You know, that's start, start with why is important. But if we don't make it practical and concrete and, and um, chunk it up, uh, people won't do it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that's a, my, a brief summary of my sort of quote queries over summer. Um, something that I like a little bit better, if there's time for me to mention that, is probably yeah. the tea pack. Yeah, um, of course where you've got these and again i'll just um, explain it briefly uh, apologies to people who do know what this is i don't mean to um over explain but equally if you don't uh tpac is a different way of approaching um teaching with technology and it says that teachers need three areas of knowledge to do this well and why i like tpac so you've got your teacher knowledge your sort of subject knowledge your pedagogical knowledge in terms of how to be a good teacher sorry your, your t is your technical knowledge p is your pedagogical knowledge and see is your content yeah and without all three of those fields working you're not going to be a, a great digital teacher i like it because i think it references the side of professional knowledge you know teachers yeah. lots of teachers have great experience they have great understanding of pedagogy and if we can layer the technology over the pedagogy and the content knowledge then we can start to do something special Definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah if anyone's interested in, in learning more about these two things uh we're running, and the ISTE certification for educators, which we're running now, that covers in the early stages very heavily um, TPAC model as well. So, and, and of course, SAMA, you know, which so basically that they have kind of the two foundations of it, which is so, you know, definitely the ISTE educator is, is a good technology agnostic certification to get to get a good overview of a lot of this mm. stuff. I think ISTE is really interesting. And I think it comes back around to, I was saying, when I started teaching, being a good, being an innovative user of technology was simply just having some. Yeah. And I think increasingly schools are looking for ways to talk about this stuff in a more informed way and yeah. to develop their teachers. Um, and certainly I think the ESD certification is something that's looking quite robust yeah. um, compared to some of the other offerings. Yeah, it's something I'm interested in finding out more about myself. I think yeah, yeah. schools in the UK who want to do interesting things with their teachers and who are ready for that, because not all schools are, I think ISTE is a really good route to explore. Yeah, well, well that's that's the thing. One of the things, reasons, we, we you know, we became only the second ISTE partner outside of the US, and one of the reasons is they're looking to get more active in, in the UK, definitely, because there's nothing really similar that exists in the UK right now. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's going to develop. I'm not sure right now, but it's, there's definitely a lot of interest. We've got a couple of uh, trusts already looking at doing the ISTE certification, so it could be interesting. Yeah, yeah I think uh, it's important. But there are We need frameworks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, even if you don't, if the thing about framework is even if you don't adopt it, this is, you've got as a point of reference to whatever you do decide to use, you know, it gives you a starting point. Totally. And yeah, no, I've, I've, I've been a fan of the things I've explored so far about ISTE, certainly. Yeah. So like you mentioned about obviously doing some consulting and stuff with other schools. How, how did you get into that? And, and what, like, you know, obviously you had a job and you started doing some freelancing, like, you know, in a kind of more practical way, you know, like, you know, people that might be looking to do this in a job, but what were the steps you took to sort of figure out what, what you could consult on and, and how you actually, you know, managed to get the customers and stuff like that? Yeah. So for me, it's been a very gradual process. First thing I did, and this is going to sound like I'm incredibly um, self-confident, which really isn't the case and certainly wasn't then. I kind of fell into my first opportunity and it's grown from there. So I actually went out to um, California and did a talk at a conference in Palo Alto. So a sort of Google summit. Yeah. Um, and I talked about critical thinking and Google tools, which for me is, is part of this whole digital approach yeah. is to be critical about our consumption of technology and how we use it. And I offered this talk and it was picked up 
and I went out and I did it and I was kind of surprised at myself for doing it now that was a situation where you're not paid to talk you're you get your conference you get your summit attendance for speaking so myself and my partner went out to California and we actually did two we did one in Palo Alto one in Orange County and we had a nice little road trip between and we made it a holiday and it was a really great introduction to the I think something teachers sometimes lose sight of if they're based in one school is context. Sure. And I tend to, to you know, potentially underrate myself. I think we all do. It goes with the territory of being a teacher, always always looking to improve, always self-critical. But to discover that people were interested in what I was saying and that I was saying something they hadn't potentially heard before or saying something in a way they hadn't heard before yeah. made me realise it's about finding your voice, isn't it? It made me realise that actually... I am bringing something interesting to this process. Sure. So from starting with some Google conferences, just as a kind of speaker, not keynoting or anything fancy, just doing some hands-on workshops um, in the US, did a couple in the UK, started to get asked to do sort of um, Google uh, Innovator Academies and that kind of process and started building a PLN through Twitter. Um, and then increasingly people would get in touch and say, you know, we're in this situation as a school, could we have some advice? And I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. My school had been very, very supportive of me helping and doing kind of uh, advisory voluntary things for local schools, but as yeah. long as they're not competitor schools. And they've been very supportive of me doing work for Google and the Innovation Academies. But it's come to a point where there's a sort of a, re a, a moment, so... I'm doing a D at the moment, and that's quite demanding, more demanding than probably I'd anticipated. So in order to focus on that, it's it's reached a tipping point where I can pay the bills um, with training and yep. consulting uh, and complete my research and move my work in the direction where I want to go. If I stayed any longer at my wonderful school, which I love, I wouldn't have been able to do those things. So you just, I think it's the key part has been just growing it slowly. Yep not just launching out into the unknown and kind of expecting it magically to fall into place, being patient. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's like, um, I think you've done the right thing in that, like, you know, people sometimes, I, I mean, I get asked all the time, how do I, you know, all the time, like, how do I become, Ben gets asked to, you know, an education consultant, you know, and how do you do this full time? And how do you speak at events? And how do you do training? And the thing is like, you know, you, you have to build a network first. You have to, you almost about fail, have to do things for free and still do things for free. I mean, I do things for free all the time, even though we run a, a business, which is consulting and training for schools, yeah. you know, we build yeah. things free every week. It's, it's always like, um, it takes a long time, you know, and it, it's, it's great to build this, network while you're still in the school i think that's the best way to do it you know, start speaking at events and start you know doing some work and to, you know because also there's a practical thing because some people everyone thinks they want to do something like this but actually some people don't like the uncertainty and if, and if you actually do it a while and realize that you know you've also got to be a salesperson you've got to you know yeah. you know if you're a school work for school you've got to sell yourself into the job in the interview but then that's not too much you know sales to the school management you know whereas when you do this kind of thing it's it's always selling you're always getting new relationships you know and that's something that a lot of people you know some people love it some people don't it's you know it, it's good to try it out when you're in a school and then see if you like it as well yeah i think absolutely i think there's two two things i'd say that definitely definitely starting out just getting some experience absolutely as you say being you know, willing to learn, listening. And when you go to those kind of events, listening to everybody else, you know, learning as much as you can. I have seen a few people kind of turn up, do their thing and go. Uh, and at the summits, at the events, you can learn a huge amount. Even if you think you know what that person's going to say, watching how they say it, watching how they deliver it, watching how the room responds to how that delivery yeah. goes. 
looking at presentation skills, all of that stuff is all professional learning that teachers need. And even if you don't go on to consult, you take all those skills back into your classroom yeah, and exactly. you a teacher. The other part of that is um, I was very lucky to have a very supportive school. And I know not everybody would have that. And I've always been very open with my leadership around what I'm doing outside school. <clears throat> and I think that relationship that I have there has allowed me to grow this. I know not everybody has that, so I'm very fortunate. When schools now are looking for advice, this is that's the part where I want to be generous and I want to help. Um, I'm still learning how to balance that part with them actually then kind of following through and booking training. Sure. Because I do have this kind of good intentions attitude to things. I think it's really important to be as generous as you can be in life, but you've got to kind of get that balance right, haven't you? Sure, um, yeah, you need to, you know, you need to make a living. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think it's like, it's very short-sighted the school leadership, senior leadership that doesn't let people go out and do it. I mean, for me, it's, it seems insanity. Schools should be encouraging every teacher to go out and speak at events and 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 restricting that. It just it just seems like they're not thinking about the growth of the teacher themselves or what that can bring to the school. You know, it just it, and it's, it happens all the time. People don't give themselves opportunities you've had, and they, it just I can't. Yeah. I genuinely don't understand why why leadership is like that. I know that leadership and schools generally are under massive budgetary pressures yeah. um, to hold on to people, but I've seen some really creative responses to this in terms of training and nothing, most of what I've done hasn't required cover or anything like that for the school to pr provide. So it's been quite easy for them to say yes to because they've yeah, chosen to be supportive, but I know it's not the same for everybody. So I, I'm lucky. And yeah. if you're in a position where it's not the same, then try and find ways of doing it to make it as easy as possible for your school to support you. Yeah, um, and, and and you went to America for your first event, and that's for UK teachers. I always always look at stuff in America. And in the US, there's a lot of events take place in the summer holidays. We do the most we do yeah. in the US in the summer. You know, yeah. um, it's huge. PD is much bigger over there. It's much more. It's much more common for teachers to do PD, and it's much more common in the summer. So that's kind of just a tip. People mm. looking to represent the conferences, check out all the ones that take place in the summer. No, no time needed to take off work, and, and it's really um, a lot going on in the summer in the US, July, August. And it was really exciting. It's a, it's a really yeah. um, interesting thing to do. And, and you can learn so much. And particularly if you are UK focused, getting outside the UK bubble and doing some training, you know, in, in Europe or doing some training in the US or just attending those conferences and speaking. Uh, it'll just it will widen your perspective on education, uh, deepen your practice, help you to be more even more thoughtful about your own classroom and your own students. It's it's, it's a win win. Definitely. So it's not, now you're in the process of going to do this full time, uh, or, or you're actually doing it right now. H how's that going? Like, is it? Uh, are you are you looking forward to? Obviously, you've you've chosen a kind of a fairly interesting time given the COVID. Yeah. Uh, and I know as well. One thing I want to mention: you're also doing this digital equity stuff, which is really really keen to hear more about that. But how how, how are you finding it? Trans, trans um, you know, transferring to doing this full time. Yeah, it's really early days. Uh, literally, you know, I, we broke up on school on the 14th of July. So. Yeah. I decided to give myself a little holiday because it's been quite an intense term one way and another. So now I really just I'm getting started more formally. It's exciting. It's a little bit nerve wracking. Um, you know, I've got the calendar for the year and it'll be the first time for me in a long, long time that September hasn't been back to school. Yeah. And just psychologically, that's a huge shift to make where I will determine my week. Yeah. One of the biggest drivers is to try and complete my research. I'm doing an ED at the Institute of Education in London, part of UCL. And it's it's a really demanding course. And I have found it very difficult to to 
do it to my satisfaction alongside working a very full-time job in a, in a very busy school and doing a bit of consulting you know, and doing the other things that I do. Uh, I do crazy ultra marathoning and all kinds of stuff. So for me, part of coming out of full-time school is to have time to really focus on this research alongside the consulting. Yeah. To ask about the research, I'm very curious, like what, um, like how, first of all, like what, what would you do? How would you describe the difference between doing an EdD and, and a PhD? Because obviously there are two main options for a doctorate in education. Like what, what are the differences and why did you choose this one? Yeah. So I, I had a good look at things. Um, I really was feeling about sort of five years ago that I needed to invest in myself professionally and yeah. sort of make progress. And I could see various options to do that. And, and I'm always wanting to study. I'm, I'm, intellectually academically curious so I thought a PhD would be the thing to do and I looked at various options and for a start most of them seemed to be full-time most of the ones I wanted to do seemed to be full-time and there's no way I could have come out of education and just fully funded a PhD for six years probably that would take to do something so the PhD is a much more sort of traditional process you find a supervisor and you basically write yeah. uh, or you carry out a research process and you write it up the EDD is described as a professional doctorate. It's very much tied to your working practice. So it's designed to be done alongside teaching or leading a school or whatever you do. And it's, it's anchored to your, to your work. So rather than one big piece of writing, the first three years is essentially a research training program. They teach you to be a researcher. They teach yeah. you to write research projects. They teach you to write proposals, to do methodological studies. They teach you all this stuff, which yeah. otherwise someone like me coming from an arts background would have no clue about yeah. and you complete these chunks of research which you write up and once you've completed the first three years you then write your thesis but your thesis is much shorter than a right. standard phd thesis so <clears throat> up to up to now uh i've done so september will be my fourth year and then d is four to seven years part-time right so you don't have to give up your job unless you choose to in my case you should be able to manage it alongside teaching. I think part of why I struggled with it is that I had a number of roles at my previous school yeah. and I was consulting. So it was just, I just need the headspace to do it well. Interested in, oh, also I chose um, the Institute of Education in London. They are the global leader for education research. They have a huge program of teacher training there. And one of the things, one of the aspects I want to look at is how we train and develop teachers. So being there makes sense. Um, and they also have the UCL Knowledge Lab, which is looking at you know, lots of connected things to, to my area. So I'm looking at digital learning and thinking skills and this whole aspect of how do we learn digitally? How do we teach digitally? How are digital tools changing teaching and learning? How can we help teachers um, develop their skills and reflect? And how can we help students learn more effectively? Yeah, uh, it's been quite it's been very challenging. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. What I've done primarily so far is look at, basically, I've crea created or developed a research tool for looking yeah. at digital learning in the classroom. So as a digital learning lead, I would quite often go into a classroom, having coached or trained a teacher a little bit on the tool they want to use, and I'd just support them in delivering it or give them or do some digital observation. Yeah. And I don't know you, but if you've got into that situation and you've sort of sat there in the classroom, watched the lesson, uh, tried not to kind of interfere too much in the progress of the lesson, tried to sort of sit back and let it happen. And then at the end, had that conversation with the teacher. It is really interesting how that conversation goes. 
Yeah. Uh, you can say, how do you how do you feel that was going? How do you feel the kids used their devices? How do you, you know, how did that lesson go as planned? And the teacher can have a whole perspective, um, which can be very different to the perspective I might have had at the, at the back of the room. Sure. So you can end up with this conversation that's quite airy-fairy. And actually, the conversation can be much more useful if it can have some sort of tethered basis in, in the events of the lesson. Right. So without getting overly, overly technical... There's a, a research method called stimulated recall that education researchers have been using for ages, where you basically video the lesson and then you do a process of talk through. So you look over the video together with the teacher, you ask them prompting questions and they, you're encouraging them to remember and recall the events of the lesson with more clarity because it's anchored. So all I've done is made a, is made a digital adaptation to that where you've we've recorded all the kids' screens. So the cats is an iPad school, so they've all got iPads. Uh, so we used Apple Classroom which just, if you're not familiar with it, all it does is kind of show you a thumbnail of the kids' screens during the lesson. So I screen recorded that with a lesson soundtrack. And then you're saying to the teacher, okay, let's look together at the events on the students' screens during that lesson. Tell me, why did you choose to do that that way? What do you see here? What do you think child X is doing at this moment? And you can have a much more useful, concrete conversation. Sometimes it's helping people to realise that their kids are really focused and really tuned in and really attentive. Sometimes it's pointing out that maybe, you know, this child who's currently very quiet at the back is on Minecraft. (laughs) It's not big brother at all. It's not um, assessing their competence as a teacher. It's framing within a reflective conversation um, what they're doing really well, letting them see that that's the key part. It's letting them see for themselves um, make and have their own informed reflection with a professional colleague on the content and the style of the lesson and how it's gone. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. I've done two, two cycles of research so far with teachers, and we also done it with some students. That's been really nice too. Students yeah. just use their own little screen um, and talks over the lesson in the same way. Oh, um, cool. But every teacher I've done it with has gone, this is going to change how I teach. And every student I've done it with has gone, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise I did this thing this way. So it can be a real confidence booster for some people. It can also just be that kind of little nudge that what we've encouraged them to do in training or what, we've, what we're sort of suggesting that they do, when they do it, it works. They can see it for themselves. Yeah. So digital observation is kind of what I'm focusing on mostly. We've also okay. done a couple of little so- projects with sort of more general research in schools. I don't know if that's interesting or... Sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm actually just curious, like just in terms of the practicality of doing the ID, like, do you actually, yeah. do, you, do you go, do you have to go there periodically? Is there any kind of residence in the summer or do you go there once a week or once a month? Like how does it actually work or is it all online? Like what's, what's the, what's the structure of it? And is there like a cohort you all start at the same time? Yeah. So it depends where you do it. So for the ID at UCL uh, in each year, there's progressively less and less contact time. So during year one, uh, we went up every Friday and school released me every yeah. Friday. They go up and then it becomes every, you know, once a month in, and then it's, you know, once a half term. And you have these day contacts, which are face-to-face. There is an online cohort. You can do it all online and by distance too. It's very flexible. Um, there's a cohort of people who all start together, but actually because people take different options as it progresses, it sort of shakes down. So you end up with people in your network who are in year four or in year two. Right, um, right. But the cohort's a very strong part of it. And since COVID in February, 
uh, it's been really noticeable how that's changed because we haven't had some of the face-to-face contacts we would normally have. Um, And it took UCL a little while to kind of scramble their online provision uh, and provide some online options instead. Um, UCL also has a really good um, program of courses that you can access, which are online and face-to-face around research training. So if you know you've got a particular need to develop a set of skills or you want to look at a particular theory, you can find online or face-to-face courses to supplement what you're getting through the direct um, program. So it's pretty flexible um, for most teach most of the, my cohort. Um, their schools are supporting them either with fees or with time, yeah. not necessarily with both. Yeah. Um, and so in my case, the school supporting me with time, but I paid my own fees. That's fine. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, so you were saying about the general education stuff you're doing as part of it as well. Yeah. So um, I've been out of formal education for quite a while. I did my master's just as I was doing my PGCE, so about 15 years ago. And I certainly found some things just like academic referencing, you know, just it's it's fiddly, it's important to get it right. So I went and I, I chose to do an extra module on that. Um, there are reading groups on particular educational theories or like critical realism or you know, all kinds of different things that so you can put together your own program. Yeah. Uh, as part of the ND, you have to accumulate a certain number of points for each year. And some of those you get from the face-to-face contacts and some of those you get from adding your own additional courses. So I've done additional courses in data analysis and evaluation. Now, yeah. I'm an English and theology graduate. You know, I'm a part of stats. It doesn't really mean a great deal to me, but now I can put that stats into a statistical modelling programme and it helps me to analyse the data that I'm drawing out of those conversations with teachers after the research. So it's really flexible. Um, it suited me quite well. Um but I now feel that I need more time than I have if I'm sure. going to keep teaching and coaching in school. Um, something's got to give. Sure, sure. Look, I think obviously we're getting up, getting up to time. It's been super interesting. I think I think the final thing about um, digital equity, a bit about you, we talk a little bit about because you, you mentioned that's something you've been interested in and working with schools. And do you want to say a bit about what what you've done in that area? Yeah, I'm just getting started on this. So I guess this probably goes back to international schools, kind of coming full circle having worked in international schools and been part of those kinds of overseas trips that international schools often do, I was really struck um, initially by a trip to Kenya uh, a while ago, how our devices that we have, they they don't disappear. When we recycle them, when we we upgrade, they filter down. And so back in Kenya, 13, 14 years ago, probably, newly qualified teacher, I was astonished to see the number of mobile phones in the street and things like MPEP and the mobile banking that have got there. They've entirely just skipped the landline phase and got straight to mobile. And it really strikes me that there is a massive opportunity for education to mobilise itself to the the point of need without, you know, so there's massive projects going on. There's a a huge programme with UNICEF right now and a number of other ones where people are trying to um, make education accessible through mobile devices. Um, So I I remember sitting in a pavement cafe in Bethlehem uh, on the Wi-Fi, sending a message home uh, and watching the kids come down the street and slowly right down as they walk past the cafe, hook into the free Wi-Fi, walk very, very slowly past the front of the cafe. The cafe owner would come out and chase them away and they'd leg it and 10 minutes later they'd be back again. And they're obviously just, these kids are improvising and innovating 
to get access to the things that they want. So why can't that be education? So I don't have a huge amount of experience in this area, but it's definitely where I want to go. And I'm hopeful that my research and consulting will help me to move in that direction. Uh, I'm looking to work on those kind of big projects. UNICEF has huge recruitment. Um, so I'm trying to position myself to get access to one of their programs or work with them. They use educational consultants as an educational consultants roster in Europe um, based out of Geneva. Um, that's sort of my, one of my next targets, definitely. And then UNICEF, that's fascinating. Do they, I mean, consultants who work with UNICEF, do you, do you get to kind of go in the field to certain countries to work on projects or is it online or is it a, var- a variety of things? It varies. So every single day there's a huge list of opportunities and they will indicate whether it's remote or local. They'll also yeah. indicate whether you need to be you know, a, a resident of the Philipp- you know, a Philippines native because a lot of, some of the work is particularly for local people in that community. Yeah. Um, at the moment they're doing a huge project with mobile education in Malawi. Yep. So at the moment they're looking for people to build that platform, but the next thing they're going to be looking for is people to help teachers use it. And that's, you know, I want to be right there in front of the queue going, yes, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something I think is really important. We can change life for the better with education. You know, statistically, we know particularly if we focus on the education of girls, we know that transforms communities because girls typically pass their education on to their children in a different way. There's so much, so much good stuff to do. And when we're in schools, um, training teachers and talking to teachers uh, and coaching people. If we can tether together all of these ideas around, let's be critical consumers of technology, let's use what benefits the learning, let's be informed by research, let's have meaningful conversations and reflective conversations about technology. Teachers can transform their classrooms, children's learning can be transformed, and the whole world just kind of opens out gradually. So, you know, I'm, I am an idealist, I am a, an optimist. Uh, I do think we can we can make a difference in in the world, but it takes a bit of time, and that's why I'm coming out of full time education to give myself time to try and pull all these pieces together. Yeah. Cool. Well, really interesting. Best of luck with your either freelancing or UNICEF stuff. Really interesting. I'm going to check out check it out. Um, thanks thanks for coming on the podcast. When where can people get in touch with you? What's the best place to look? Thanks very much for having me and thanks for letting me um, chatter on about things that I'm interested in. I hope it's interesting for your listeners. Um, I do have a website, uh, thinkteachtech.co.uk, or you can hit me on Twitter, which is also at thinkteachtech. Um, always, always interested to, to connect with people who are you know, thinking about educational research or equity or just coaching or just want to have a talk about ideas. So it'd be lovely to hear from people. Great. Well, Laura, huge thank you again. And I'll put the links in the show notes to all the things you said, your website and Twitter and everything. Thanks again and all the best for the future. Thanks for having me.